Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Thanksgiving has come and gone, and that Christmas and this season of Advent is already upon us. I, I know that we think about it, it's already upon us starting around Halloween, right? You know, I mean, uh, uh, the pumpkins and pies so quickly make way to Christmas trees and lights, Uh, We see there is a warmth and a glow within our houses. I don't know how many of you were already putting up Christmas decorations around the house. We had Nathaniel home and Adriana home over the weekend from college. And so it was like as quickly as possible, we wanted to put everything together and to be able to put ornaments already on the tree. And so many of just the memories that come from doing that. There's such joy in that. And And we know that too, we we find as we look around, there's smells and there's sights, there's there's something special about this season. And of course, we would ask, well, what is it about this season that's so special? You know, is it just simply the, the family gathering together and food on our tables? Is it the exchanging of gifts? Is it the imagination and the wonder that we see in children's eyes? Is it that there is a kinder and gentler spirit that seems to be in the air? Or is it that there is something about this season, whether or not people recognize it, where the sacred seems to touch the secular and where hearts and lives are transformed? See, I would say that the answer to these questions is yes. There is a season that we are in. It's a season that we know as Advent, that there is something that is special about this season. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way. He said the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. And that really is what this meaning of Advent is. It is about something that is greater to come. That's what the word Advent means. We highlighted every season of Advent. This idea of what it means to come, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which comes from the Greek word parousia, this idea of coming, where we recognize this longing of people's hearts for God to send a Messiah into the world, this first advent, but where we also live with anticipation of his second advent, when Christ will come again to establish his eternal kingdom. I don't know about you, but if you had a time machine, when in history would you go? Where would you want to go? See, for me, I, I would love to, to go back to those years, perhaps right before Christ came. 
to, to see what was the world like? What is it that people were longing for? What is it that they were anticipating? The thing is, what we would find is it's probably not so different from the longing of people's hearts today. Even then, you had death. You had disease. You had conflict, political war, poverty, hatred, crime, brutality, broken families, abuse. All of the things that you and I are experiencing today, the people of Israel would have experienced 2,000 years ago. People were aware that the world was broken and it was desperately in need of fixing it was desperately in need of redemption. It was desperately in need of a redeemer. And thankfully, this redeemer has come, whether or not people recognize it or not. And whether or not you recognize it, the season of Advent transports us back in time as well. See, we are transported back to that time when people were longing for the first advent of Jesus, longing for the advent of the Messiah that was to come. But it also transports us to the future. Because Advent is also a time where we look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will come again in all of his glory in that second Advent when the trumpet sounds and we will see Jesus Christ face to face. This is what theologians call the already and the not yet, where we celebrate the first Advent, but we look forward to that second Advent. Now, to help us with that, we're going to be looking at some of the different songs of the season. The Carols of Christmas is this next sermon series that we find ourselves in. And here's what's amazing is so many of the Christmas songs of the season that we sing really are about the already and the not yet. What has already come, but what we are longing for that is to come. Now, here's what's going to be a little bit different about this sermon series. In many ways, I was saying to Pastor Andrew this week, I feel like I'm expositing a hymn instead of scripture. And this is something that is very different for me and very different for us. And yet, the more I began to dive into the first hymn that we're studying together today, what we find is all of these hymns are actually based in Scripture. And so as we look at these hymns, we're actually going to be looking at the Scriptures and what they say. And what I hope happens is it gives us a richer understanding of the songs that we sing but that it also gives us a richer understanding of the scriptures around Christmas. And that together, it will richen our hearts and our lives. The first song that we're unpacking together today is a song that is all about coming. Now, when I say that, I am not talking about Santa Claus is coming to town. We're talking about a different coming, and this is about Jesus. This first carol that we're unpacking together today is this song that we've already begun singing together, this song, O Come, 
O Come Emmanuel. And it is a song that is all about the promise of Christ's coming into the world, but also a song that longs for Christ's coming again. I want to give you a little bit of background uh, around this song that we sing together. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is actually one of the oldest Christmas carols that we sing. It's actually 1,200 years old because it was written somewhere in the 8th or 9th century and priests would sing what is known as the O Antiphons. And these O Antiphons were these words or phrases that would come. So like, O Come, Emmanuel, or O Come, Dayspring, or O Wisdom. And so all of these reflect something about Jesus Christ. They are a different view and a different meaning of this Messiah that we pray was going to come and eventually did come. Now, eventually this hymn was translated into English in 1850 by an Anglican priest by the name of John Mason Neal. And it was set to the tune, Veni Emmanuel, which comes from a 15th century processional from Lisbon, Portugal. What's interesting about this hymn is that it is actually in the minor key, which actually I think is very appropriate for this season of Advent because it's not a song of celebration. It's actually one of hope. It's a prayer that in dark times, God would rescue his people, Israel. God would rescue us from our distress. It is a song that is a reminder that God is with us, that God has been with us, and that God will be with us. And as a result, that leads to rejoice. Rejoice. And so, in some ways today, what I'm going to invite you to do is to have your Bible in one hand and your hymn book in another as we study this song together. Notice, first of all, by the way, what does this first verse say? O come, O come, Emmanuel. And ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. See, this song harkens back to when the people of Israel were slaves. They were captives to these foreign nations. They were captives to their sin. The people of Israel lived as captives to the Babylonians and to the Persians and to the Assyrians. And we know that they were captives, what? Spiritually as well. Captives to their sin. Captives to these other nations. And why were they captives and in exile? It's because of their sinfulness, that God allowed the people of Israel to be brought into judgment by these other nations. And so you can imagine that the people of Israel would have been crying out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom us because we are captives here in this foreign land. Set us free because we are slaves, slaves to these masters, slaves to our sin. God, 
We are mourning in lonely exile here. God, you seem so far from us. God, we need you to redeem us. And this goes back to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, 1 to 17, God makes a promise to the people of Israel. And he makes a promise to us. If you pick up in verse 4, notice what it says. God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz and says, Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. And then you drop down to verse 7 and notice what it says, that these nations that have plotted against you, this is what God said through the prophet, it will not take place. It will not happen. And in fact, in order to give King Ahaz some peace around this, he says, Ask for a sign. Whatever you ask for, notice what it says in verse 11. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether the deepest depths or the highest heights. And God says, Ahaz, whatever you ask for me as a sign, no matter how deep or how high this promise that these two kings will not overtake you, I will give it to you. But what does Ahaz do? Ahaz refuses this sign from God. In verse 12, it says, I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounds very pious, right? I mean, we think about Jesus when he's being tempted in the world. He says, oh, no, do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. And so we look at Ahaz and think, wow, how pious of him to say to the Lord, I will not ask for a sign. But it was a false piety. Because what Ahaz had already done was work a deal out with the Assyrians and basically say, you know what, if you protect me against these other two smoldering stubs of firewood, what, I'll pledge you my loyalty. But what he didn't realize was he was making a deal with the devil, so to speak, because the Assyrians we're going to be far worse than these other two stubs of firewood when he turned on King Ahaz. And so in verse 14, God said, I know your heart, Ahaz. I know that you are not being honest in this. And God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And what is that sign that God gives in verse 14? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is the exact promise that was fulfilled that we celebrate at Christmas. Notice what it says. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. Notice what it says, reading verses 18 to 23. It says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. O come, O come, Emmanuel. This is Jesus who has come into the world and as a human being. It's what we call the incarnation when Jesus Christ took on human flesh and bone. It is one of the greatest miracles that has ever taken place in human history. In fact, theologian Wayne Grudem says this about the incarnation. It is by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. The fact that an infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to human nature forever so that the infinite God became one person with finite man and will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. See, when God came to earth as a human being. This incredible miracle came with a mission, this mission of salvation. God came to save people from their sins. God did something that we could never do for ourselves. He bore a righteousness that we could not bear. Our deeds Done in unrighteousness, Jesus became righteousness on our behalf. And through his mercy, he died in our place on the cross. He took our place, what you and I deserve. He took our sins upon himself. And Jesus Christ became our righteousness. The call then for us is to believe calls us to believe in this virgin birth. He calls us to believe that he indeed took on human flesh and bone. He calls us to believe that he died for our sins. He calls us to believe that he is indeed Israel who ransomed us from our captives. And just as Jesus ransomed the captives of Israel. So Jesus ransoms us from the sin that holds us captive. It is Jesus Christ who is our Emmanuel. Notice, as we turn our attention to verse 2, what does it say? O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. The word dayspring points back to Zechariah's prophecy about the coming of Jesus. And even this points back to an earlier prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 where it says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light 
has dawned. My guess is that you didn't see a sunrise this morning. But I don't know if you've noticed that in recent weeks, the, the sunsets have been particularly beautiful. But even more so, the sun rises. If you've seen them, maybe it's the cool crispness that's in the air. But if you, if you arise and you wake up early enough and you go outside and you see the, the, the moon and the stars and the blackness of night. But then what begins to happen is that that darkness begins to turn to a blue. And then all of a sudden that blue becomes these purples and these pinks. And all of a sudden, the sky just begins to change in its color. And as the sun just rises above the horizon, all of a sudden, it's like the sky radiates in all of this beauty and all of this glory. And this is exactly what the prophet Isaiah is saying about the Messiah. He's saying, look, there is this light that is coming. There is this light that is dawning. And even though you feel like you've been living in darkness for a long time, even though you've been waiting for this Messiah, you've been watching for these signs, this darkness is going to fade into the glorious sunrise of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, brings us back to Zechariah's prophecy. And though his prophecy is about his son, also about Jesus Christ, it's the last prophecy that is spoken before the birth of Jesus. Notice what it says in Luke chapter 1, in verses 76 to 79. Zechariah said, and he's talking about his son, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. To give his people the knowledge and salvation, or the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven and shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. The NIV translates this as the rising sun. The ESV translates it as the sunrise, but it's the King James Version where we read that word dayspring. It's what this word originally means, but it's a word that's fallen out of favor. We don't use that word dayspring like they would years and years ago. But this is the promise. That just as the sun begins to rise above the horizon and brings with it the coming sunlight, this day spring that reminds us that it is Jesus Christ who is the promise of a new day, the promise of a new dawn. It is Jesus Christ who brings with him the light of the world. We know that we live in darkness, we live in depression, we live in grief, we live in hardship, we live in trial. There are days where it may feel as though you are living in darkness. And that's all you see around you are your problems. Some may feel as though they are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
And yet, what is the promise? That because of Jesus Christ, the gloominess of night begins to disappear. The clouds begin to move away. It's because of Jesus that you and I do not need to fear death. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Again, he's Emmanuel, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And beloved people, what that means is that as we turn to him and live in the blessed and assured hope that he is our day spring, we have the promise of everlasting life. We have the promise that even if we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we have the promise of eternal life because he is the light of the world who guides us in the path of peace. He is our day spring. Notice third, it says, O wisdom, O come thou wisdom from on high. And order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. Is there any doubt that we live in a world that is filled with confusion and ignorance and disorder? Is there any doubt that we need wisdom to come and rule the day? Of course, the question is, whose wisdom do we need to come and rule the day? You know, all we have to do is look around us and we see the type of wisdom that the world has to offer. Right? I mean, how many of you have been following the, the fall of a cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, right? And the billions and billions billions of dollars that have been lost, seeking certainly to line people's pockets, but all in what they call effective altruism. This idea that we're just going to, what, I guess, buy happiness. We're going to buy a changing of the world. And, and what we recognize is that as people have followed after this worldly wisdom, it has led to incredible financial losses. But we never seem to learn our lesson because we remember the things of Enron. We remember the financial fallings of years ago. But guess what? It's not just that, right? It's far more than just financial, right? I mean, we see it in, in world governments, in politics. You even see it in, look, I love the beautiful game. I love soccer, football, right? But man, if you even watch the things that have happened in Qatar in order to bring about the, the billions of dollars that are spent and according the billions of dollars that will be made, and yet you hear in the background dozens to thousands of migrant workers that were killed or died as a result of bringing about stadiums for games. 
when we follow after the ways and the wisdom of the world, we get pain, we get evil, we get strife, we get disorder. What the world needs is God's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about this new kind of wisdom. Listen to what he says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believed. Do you see how contrasting the, the wisdom that's mentioned here? The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. Paul is saying that those who fail to see the wisdom of God are actually living in foolishness. In the Psalms, Psalm 4.1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But such are the ways of the world. But God's ways are different. This is why we need the wisdom of God. Listen to what Paul says in verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, listen to this, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than any human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than any human strength. Notice what verse 24 says, that Jesus is called the wisdom of God. You know, when I talk to people, and you engage them about the state of the world, people recognize that the world is broken. That the world is not as it should be. I mean, even people who don't believe in Jesus Christ have a sense that there's something wrong. There's something that's broken. And so they look for healing and hope in all kinds of different places. They look for it in achievement. They look for it in money. Whatever it is, the pursuits of the world. But in the end, they all end up lacking it's led to more strife, more confusion, more quarrels. What God's word says is that what leads to peace is believing that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. Believing that he is God who is with us. That he is our day spring who brings light to the darkness. That he is wisdom. And that to follow him is what it means to be truly wise. This is what we remember as we celebrate Christmas together. I want you to listen closely to what Paul says in verses 26 to 31. Let this 
Let this just sink into your hearts this morning. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus Christ is our wisdom from on high. And that leads me to the final verse this morning. Though there are, we've sung some of them, there's like eight or nine verses to this hymn, so we won't go through all of those. But listen to this. O come, desire of nations bind, all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Where do we get this word desire of nations, this phrase? Well, it comes from an Old Testament prophet, one that we may often overlook. It's the prophet Haggai. Haggai is a book that was actually written to God's people as a book of encouragement. See, the people of Judah had been living in exile in Babylon for 70 years. The temple had been destroyed. But now, the people have returned. We, we studied the book of Nehemiah earlier this year where the wall around the temple, around the city was rebuilt. But here you have the temple first being rebuilt in this city. And you can imagine that as they're rebuilding this temple, what begins to happen is the people, and especially as Haggai might refer to them as the old timers, they remembered the glory of the temple of long ago, right? 70 years they had been in exile. Some of them had been alive, perhaps, when that temple was there. And then it had been destroyed. And now they were in the process of rebuilding it. And they felt like what they were doing was insignificant. Look at what Haggai 2, 3 says. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So the people, they're wondering, is what we're doing here, does it matter? And Haggai knew that the Lord would one day use this temple to bring him glory. Notice what it says in verses 4 to 7. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the land, declares the Lord, and work. 
For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. And then this, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Verses 8 and 9 say, Silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The big question is, what's the desire of the nations? Is it the gold that will fill the temple? Or... Is it a greater glory that was to come? See, what scholars say, and what I say to us this morning, is that the glory is Jesus Christ, who was going to fill the temple and bring us peace, more than gold, more than silver, more than treasure ever could. It is Jesus Christ who is the desire of nations, whether they realize it or not, the pursuit of power, the pursuit of all of the things that in the world eventually fail. But it is Jesus Christ who does not fail. He is the desire of nations. He is the one whom people long for, even if they don't know. And beloved people, these are the things that we search for and that we long for, but that they are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is our Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is our day spring in him. He is the light of the world. He makes the darkness and the sin flee. He is the wisdom that we need, the wisdom that we need to search for. And what do we know? He is the day spring who will come again and fill the temple with all its glory. But what we know is that when Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, comes again in all of his glory, that every knee will bow, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether people want to admit it or not, every knee will one day bow. Friends, I pray that we bow now before it's too late. That we bow now and say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, would you ransom this captive to sin, this captive to brokenness, ransom and set me free? Because Lord Jesus, you alone can do it because you are Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel.
He is God with us. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. And we say, come, Lord.